Good afternoon and welcome to the 104th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, it's a discussion of ethics, epidemiology, and COVID-19 with Daniel Goldberg and Ashley Holub. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 13th, 2020, there are 20,716,498 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 20,423,897 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,226,916 are in the United States. That's up from 5,168,685 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 166,623 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 165,000. 270, yet another day with more than a thousand deaths from day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Baby I Can't Breathe, America's First ER Doctor to Die in the Heat of COVID-19 Battle. This is by Alistair G. and appeared in The Guardian April 9th of this year. And it appears as part of a quite remarkable collection, which is called from, uh, it's called Lost on the Front Line. It is pulled together by Kaiser Health News and The Guardian. You can find it easily online. I also have tweeted a link to it uh, on my Twitter page, at US of Disaster. At about 5 a.m. on March 19th, a New York City ER physician named Frank Gabrin texted a friend about his concerns over the lack of medical supplies at hospitals. It's busy, everyone wants a COVID test that I do not have to give them, he wrote in the message to Eddie Sofer. So they are angry and disappointed. Worse though, was the limited availability of personal protective equipment, the masks and gloves that help keep healthcare workers from getting sick and spreading the virus to others. Gabrin said he had no choice but to don the same mask for several shifts against Food and Drug Administration guidelines. Less than two weeks later, Gabrin became the first ER doctor in the U.S. known to have died as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to the American College of Emergency Physicians. Gabrin knew the stakes of his job. Inside, <coughs> excuse me, inside the emergency, the angel of death is in the room, he wrote in his 2013 book, Back from Burnout. The pressure is intense, yet there is a calm, a peace, like being in the eye of the storm. His own resilience was hard won after several close brushes with mortality and his marriage to a special man only seven months prior to the COVID-19 spike in New York. But circumstances around the coronavirus unsettled him. I have to admit, he posted on Facebook, I'm having some anxiety. Toothy and energetic, Gabrin, 60, was adored by colleagues at hospitals in Ohio, New York, and elsewhere. He was loud, 
He always arrived at work bearing food to share. He was a ray of sunshine, said physician assistant Lois Ann Welsh, and possessed the emotional intelligence that differentiated a great doctor from merely a good one. Born in Pennsylvania, Gabren was a physician by calling and his mother had photographs of him as a child tending to neighborhood dogs. His commitment to his profession was strengthened by his own illness. During his first year as an attending physician, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. He survived, but it returned when he was 38. When infections in New York surged in March, Gabrin posted a picture of ambulances crowding a hospital bay on Facebook. I was thinking, oh my God, this is the moment Armageddon happens, said Deborah Vasilech Lyons, another old friend. He said, no, it's still manageable, but it's not going to be this way forever. In fact, St. John's Episcopal in Queens, one of two hospitals where Gabrin worked at the time, was among local facilities dealing with challenges around PPE, personal protective equipment, said New York City Council member Donovan Richards. The hospital says it has always had enough equipment for staff. Richards linked difficult conditions there to historical discrimination and under-resourcing in the largely African-American and Hispanic district. When America gets cold, black and brown communities get pneumonia, Richards said. But in this instance, we're getting death sentences. In conversations with his husband and friends in mid and late March, including in text messages shared with The Guardian, Gabrin said he had to reuse his PPE because he did not receive replacements. He told Lyons that he was attempting to wash an N95 mask to make it last several shifts, and that the only gloves available were too small for his hands and ripped. On March 25th, when Gabrin arrived home, he said, baby, something had something bad happened tonight. Arnold Vargas, his husband recalled. A coronavirus patient with whom Gabrin formed a deep connection had passed away. Gabrin took a shower and cried, then he and Vargas offered a prayer for the person's soul. The next morning, a Thursday, they both had symptoms and self-quarantined. It was me using the same mask for four days in a row that infected me, he texted Lyons. Through the weekend, their cases seemed mild. Gibran coughed and had joint aches, but didn't have significant respiratory issues. On Monday, though, Gibran was in greater pain and spent the day in bed. At around 10 a.m. on that Tuesday, he woke Vargas and said, I can't breathe, help me. He was gasping for air in great hoarse breaths, but could not get enough oxygen. Vargas called Lyons and 911. But by the time paramedics arrived, Gabrin was on the edge of death or had already gone. His face had turned purple. Frank passed away in my arms, Vargas said. He was looking into my eyes. Let's turn to today's discussion and I'm Really excited for this conversation today. Let me introduce my guests. Daniel S. Goldberg is trained as an attorney, a historian of medicine and a public health ethicist. His current research agenda in law, policy, and bioethics focuses on many things, including the social determinants of health, public health policy and chronic illness, health inequities and stigma. In addition, he maintains an active research program in the history of medicine and focuses primarily on two topics in 19th century America, the history of medical imaging, especially x-rays, and the history of pain without lesion. My second guest is Dr. Ashley Hollow. She recently graduated with a PhD in epidemiology and has worked in emergency medicine, pediatrics, and mental health. She is currently a fellow in medical devices and real-world analytics and has an interest 
in scientific communication. Daniel and Ashley, thanks for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'd like to remind everybody you can get your questions into YouTube Live. Just put them into the YouTube Live chat. You can also get them up in Facebook or in Periscope, and you can email them to me directly if you wish to at sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can put them up on Twitter at US of Disaster. Just be sure to tag me with your question. People like to get questions in all sorts of different ways. So let's start the way um, we usually do, just try to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic situation is looking there today. Daniel, can I start with you? Sure, I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. That's where I live and I've been here for the last four years. Um, and the pandemic here in Colorado um, is okay, is what I would say. Um, it's not great, of course, where is it great in the US? But um, our metrics have been consistently improving, I'd say for the last three to four weeks. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before our state health director indicated that our reproduction number was 0.67. Anything below one is good. So 0.67 is pretty good. Um, uh, hospitalizations are down, cases are declining. Um, so a lot of things in Colorado look pretty good. I think our state positivity is also below three right now. Um, you know, that's also pretty good on the state level. So, um, you know, I mean, we're take, I'm taking each day as it comes, things could change tomorrow in a week, 10 days. But for right now, the metrics in Colorado relative to the rest of the US look um, not bad. Daniel, did you ever reach a, a point there uh, in Colorado where the surge um, compromised possibility for people to get into ICUs or you had uh, problems with ventilators and things like that, like they've experienced in, in other states west of the Mississippi? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. Um, I think in the peak, our peak hospitalizations were somewhere, I think we're around 800 to 900. Um, and don't forget that Colorado's population, right, that's per capita, Colorado is much less people, of course, than New York State or California or something like that. So we have less occupancy sure, in this sure. space as well. Um, but no, I think things got busy um, in March and April, but to the best of my knowledge, there, we never quite reached health system capacity. We had some surge capacity that was being built out in the local convention center and things like that, but it never had to be used. Um, and we never were at serious risk of running out of ventilators either. Colorado implemented strict stay-at-home restrictions relatively early based on the other states. Um, and they were also lifted a bit gradually as well. Um, so, for example, the, the stay-at-home orders in the metro Denver area didn't actually cease until about mid-May. I seem to remember that in very early days, there were issues and concerns about the ski areas because so many people were in spring break and in the ski areas in February and March. But I, I haven't seen any return to that sort of through epidemiological study. I, I don't know if you've kept up with that at all, if that's borne out, that th those were super spreader events, or was that just more of a concern? It wasn't super spreaders, but there were outbreaks, right? I mean, the hot spots early in Colorado in March were definitely in the ski areas. I mean, you're talking about March in Colorado, if you know anything about the ski industry. And again, I'm pretty new to Colorado, only four years, but it's very, very busy. And of course, people literally come from all over the planet, you know? And so um, that is where some of the outbreaks, and I think the real concerns about those things being centered in um, the ski industry is although they do have excellent health care in most of the big round resorts like Vail and things like that, um, and in Summit County, the issue is there's very limited ICU bed capacity, and most of the mm -hmm. energy is directed towards sports medicine, 
right? And, and injury, injury care and stuff like that for obvious reasons. And so the concern was that if it got too big in the ski areas in the high country that, you know, they just weren't going to have the capacity to address it. So um, they were able to implement measures that brought them down reasonably quickly. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, they've done pretty well out in most of the ski areas, but they did have to shut down the ski industry. They shut it down completely to the loss of billions. I think it went into the billions of dollars um, was the calculated loss by having to shut in March because they probably would have been going for at least another six to eight weeks. Well, thanks for giving up the, uh, giving us this update from Colorado. We haven't had very many of those on, on COVID calls. Ashley, could I turn to you? Please find out where you're calling from and what it's looking like there COVID-wise. Sure. So I am actually in New York. I am on Long Island about an hour outside of New York City. Um, things here are, relatively speaking, looking pretty okay as well. Um, so obviously hit pretty hard in the beginning, but things have kind of really stagnated. We're looking at approximately 700 in the range of 500 to 700 new cases a day here. Um, so it's been steady, um, obviously not as high as some other states, but still, you know, not great, still some work to do. Um, yeah, and I actually was in Rochester previously before I got down here at the end of April, really at peak. And, you know, Rochester is also in New York, but a very, very different scenario. So I think as of today, New York is at 422,703 cases total. Um, in my county on Long Island alone, there's about 44,000, um, whereas Rochester has really only hung around 5,000. And the it's interesting to talk about, you know, the, the vast differences in New York State and reminds me of these daily briefings that, you know, the governor was giving, Governor Cuomo was giving, in which he was talking not only to New York, people in New York City, but also Long Island and also upstate New York. Can you give a little bit of a, a sense of, of how Cuomo is perceived right now? I mean, he was such a daily presence back in March and April. Are you hearing as much from him these days? Yeah, he's still very much a presence. He's there. He's giving his briefings. Um, you know, the news will stop the cycle to kind of announce what, where he's at, if we were expecting something to be dropped. Um, so he is still very much as involved, I would say, as he was in the beginning. Um, he seems very, very committed. And I think in general, people perceive him to be doing a pretty good job. You know, our numbers haven't jumped back up considerably. Um, we're just kind of hanging out at where we've been for, you know, a month or so now. So definitely an improvement from where we were back in March. What's the situation on the schools out there in Long Island? Do you, have you been able to follow that or are they going to be returning to class or hybrid or no, they're, they're staying uh, sheltered at home? Yeah, the school situation is one that's still really up in the air. So New York had basically went down this route where every district was supposed to propose their own plan and then the state would approve it. And so this actually means even within the same county, the school can theoretically have a completely different take. Um, so some schools have discussed doing this sort of A, a B day thing where there's half student capacity. Some schools have discussed, you know, forget it, we'll just go hybrid um, or, you know, completely online. And so it still remains to be seen. And, and the general consensus that I'm getting is that even though the plans have been proposed and some are already approved, it seems like that's going to be an ever changing thing pretty much even up to the first day of school and beyond. Well, thank you for that update from Long Island. So let's dive in a little bit. Daniel, I'm going to start with you. I mean, today we're going to cover a lot of topics. And I guess a sort of general frame is sort of thinking about the ethics of risk and health in the context of this pandemic and the ways that Americans think and talk about health today, since it's the number one topic we're all talking about. And I'd like to start with a general sense and hear from you about how you think about risk and how health risk is framed 
in the United States. You know, we talk about public health, we talk about community health, we talk about individual health a lot, maybe too much. Um, I'm wondering if you can sort of take us into this discussion a little bit and you know, what's at stake with these different terms, these different ideas? Um, start us out. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. It's a it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think um, I think a couple things. I think you know one of the conventional pieces of wisdom about USian or American society is that it's an individualistic place, right? We tend to be more individualistic. So that's conventional wisdom. What's funny is that when the political scientists actually set out to study whether or not that's true, it turns out to be pretty accurate. In this case, the conventional wisdom is right on, right? I mean, American USian culture is politically individualist in many ways. Um, and as a scholar of public health and theory and law and policy and history and ethics, that's not a good thing. Let's just say it like that. There are strengths to being an individualistic society. I'm not saying there aren't any benefits or advantages to it, but public health is public. It's collective. Um, and I think that our idea of thinking about risk largely along individual lines is is problematic. And it, it's most problematic, not just because if that's how we conceptualize the risk of exposure, then that tends to be the level at which we're also going to think about intervening, right, on individuals, on changing individual behaviors and those kinds of things, for example. And the evidence is very good from epidemic, you know, we have very good epidemiologic evidence that that's not a winning public health strategy. It's not to say you can ignore it, you know, um, but it's not a real strength, you know, and so I, I would say that part of the effort, the general efforts for public health in general in the U.S. for at least 100 to 150 years, you know, has been to think about what it means to act more collectively you know, um, and higher upstream on determinants of health as opposed to always trying to just intervene on individual levels. You know, that's what medicine and healthcare has really been focused on. And there's a place for that, but that doesn't tend to work very well in public health. Um, and it also tends to expand health inequalities and have some other problems. So um, that idea of how we perceive a risk and the fact that it's largely individualized in the US, I think um, has been and continues to be a significant problem. Just to, to stay with the origins of this, it's so interesting, this discussion is yesterday, I was talking about Cancer Alley with some experts there, again, public health. And, um, you know, the conversation started with a discussion of the Constitution. And I really appreciated that because it was, you know, we really started with the kind of firmament of American politics and American culture. But I want to ask you about this individual thing a little bit um, and how you, how you, trace that through. I mean, there are other individual con individualist countries. Uh, I'm thinking of places like Canada, for example, um, and yet they still take a more community-minded or a more sort of communitarian approach to public health. I, how do you account for differences like that? Well, so I would say that and you, I know I'm talking to an ace historian here, Scott. So, so I, I, what I would say is historians disagree um, I tend to be quite persuaded by an idea, and this is not That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I tend to be, I, find, I teach a paper called The Exodus of Public Health, which came out in the American Journal of Public Health in 20, 2010. And it was produced, it comes from the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health, which was at Mailman School of Columbia. So Amy Fairchild and James Colgrove, right, and Sherry Gleed and a few other people. And they refer to the roots of American public health or public health in the West as being much more originally in the mid to late 19th century, much more strongly connected to ideas of social reform. 
right? And that you really have to, and you can think about Rudolf Virchow, you can think about angles, right? Um, um, and on the conditions of the working class, right? And things like that. And where they really refer to the idea of, you know, of, of being able to intervene on public health at the structural social level, right? That's where you get Fairchild's famous quote, medicine is nothing but politics on a large scale. Um, and what they do in this article in 2010 is they trace the exodus from that set of ideas, from that platform rooted in hmm. social and political reform um, to something that they think has been, and here I'm borrowing from Paula Lance at the University of Michigan, something that's been medicalized, right? Where public health begins to look more and more like medical approaches to disease and illness, right? And while there are some benefits to that, um, I'm right on board with thinking there are a whole heaping lot more of disadvantages, right? Medicine in the US has traditionally been much more individualized, right? It focuses on the individual's illness complaints and ways to relieve them, right? And sure, sometimes they think about the family and others, and I'm not saying medicine is not at all concerned with larger society, but it's operating on a different level. You know, public health is public. And so that paper, I think, to me, makes a strong case for a variety of factors leading to this sort of exodus. It's not as simple as just sort of, obviously, I'm describing it in 40 seconds or so, right? But but the idea that it's moved away from this emphasis on um, social and political structures and institutions that we know shape health and its distribution in human societies, moved away from attention to those kinds of things to focus on things like, um, you know, um, lab services and things like that, which have their role in public health, by the way, laboratory public health people don't, don't yell at me, that's important too, right? Um, but but that it, it starts to look a lot more medicalized. And to me, that's been part of the real problem with public health. That's interesting. And, and it also speaks to, you know, since we've tagged history into this, the need to have historical exam. I've been asked a lot, I'm sure both of you have been asked too, you know, what lessons does history have to show us um, from the past that might help us deal with this pandemic. And I actually, I think, you know, you make a really nice point there, Daniel, that there, I mean, just look at the history of infrastructure in the United States or the history of the provision of clean water or sewerage, that there, our history is full of great examples in which broad public health need resulted in, in enormous investments, public investments in infrastructure or public private investments in infrastructure. They're not always only public owned. But a lot of times that history is obscured or not pulled forward in this moment. And the emphasis is, as you say, on the, the heroic doctor, the heroic vaccine, the individualized treatment. Ashley, I'd like to bring you in on this and see, you know, what do you think about, you know, this discussion about the public health versus individual health and, and risk and maybe what price we're paying for that cultural background in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, certainly. So I do agree. There is kind of this this shift or even a culture war between personalized medicine and precision medicine for the individual patient versus what's better for the community on a large scale. Um, and they're different. They're different constructs. Right. But the problem is that we have really focused so, so hard and invested so much in this precision medicine that I think that that really stems out of our culture to begin with. And so you mentioned the Constitution earlier and people believing that, you know, this is their amendment, right? They don't have to do that. But, you know, vaccines is, some, is a perfect example where we all buy in and we all invest in society and the community by getting our vaccine. And we grant herd immunity to those who are not able to be vaccinated. Um, that's not a personalized approach that very much happens on a mass scale. And that requires some sort of infrastructure from above to really implement that and carry that out. Um, and so in terms of precision medicine and individualized medicine, there's always a place for that. But in terms of a mass disaster like 
COVID or any other pandemic or other any other event, we need to start thinking on a larger scale. Um, and unfortunately, those larger changes do need large infrastructure. And so it's a matter of implementing that when as a society for so long, we've been working on the ways to keep you as individualized as possible, because that's what keeps everybody happy. Let me stay with this for a second, Ashley, and just sort of bring it into the kind of political structure of the of the country. I had a great conversation a couple months ago with the historian Don Kettle, and we talked about federalism. And, you know, federalism is, again, thought to be one of the, often argued as one of the sort of great American political innovations that allows balance of power and allows a, a nice balance between sort of the commons and the individual. Um, and now, but we're looking at this pandemic as 50 pandemics plus the territories and governors, you and I were talking about Cuomo just a minute ago, who in the midst of this has arguably been more important than the president of the United States. It seems like we're paying an awfully high cost for not having stronger centralization um, when it comes to emergencies. It, I don't know, Ashley, do you, can, can I draw you out on that a little bit? What, what do you think about political structure in this moment? What recommendations could you yeah, offer? Definitely. I think one of the things that's been so interesting from the start, right, is that we're finally seeing in real time who holds more power. Is it the states or is it the federal government? And I think at the current time, most people would agree the states are really driving what's going on in their hometown and their residences, and they're really driving most of the country forward. But there's not much communication between states, and recently states were trying by issuing travel bans against other states. And so those sort of things become a lot more feasible and easier when everybody is on the same page, right? So when New York was kind of ground zero, a lot of New Yorkers fled and they went elsewhere in the country, which makes them you know, very applicable vectors to the new areas that they've gone to. And so how do you kind of start stop that mass spread when you have people moving and there's no guidance between states? And so whose state gets to say what the guidance is? Is it, is it state A versus state B? Does a, an independent state come in and say, nope, you guys shouldn't do that? Um, but you have 50 of us, so how do you regulate everybody? Mm -hmm, um, right. And so we saw a lot of this at the start too, not even just with the states, but other things that would implement on a federal level. So for example, when we realized that we needed to bring all the Americans overseas back, back home um, to kind of avoid any kind of outbreaks from bringing it back from Europe or wherever they were, it was an overnight decision, which resulted in everybody in the airport at once, essentially creating you know eight to nine hours in custom lines. Um, it's not an ideal situation um, from a federal response which was a federal decision, but it, it didn't really take into account what the states were doing. So there needs to be some conversation on both ends. Um, and right now, I think what we're seeing is that that's really fallen off and it's just the states kind of driving things. Daniel, I know one of the things that you've been um, thinking about in, in the context of the pandemic is that we need to pay attention to a phrase you use called harm reduction. And uh, as we think about the pandemic, what, what do you mean by that term? Can you can you bring us into the thinking about that a little bit? Sure, I can, but I want to make sure I give the proper cred here, which is so the people who I think are driving this perspective forward are Julia Marcus, who's at Harvard School of Public Health, and my colleague, Lindsay Wiley, who's the director of 
of, of health law at American University in DC. But the basic idea of harm reduction, which is core to public health, especially public health with chronic illness, which is actually where my focus is, right? I mean, public health law and public health ethics was kind of born out of infectious disease. So I have something, I have some knowledge there, but I really think a lot more about non-communicable illness for most of my academic career. The idea is behind harm reduction is, look, it might be better if people didn't do X that exposed them to risks Y and Z, but people are going to do X. Right. So if you try to implement public health interventions in, and you plan for a world in which people don't do the thing that you want them not to do, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to work. And perhaps more importantly, it's going to erode trust and increase the likelihood that you're going to stigmatize marginalized and vulnerable groups, which is exactly what happens when we don't do harm reduction. Right. So the classic example Dr. Marcus has used because she focuses on HIV and AIDS and STI based research in general is, yeah, you know, I mean, you might want to tell right at risk groups in the late 1980s that it would be better for them to stop having sexual intercourse but people are going to have sex i mean right? they just are and so you have to think about ways to reduce the harms right um when you're talking about the early days of hiv and aids for example right to these groups and so there's lots of different strategies for doing this right and so that's what dr marcus in particular has been uh, urging in a lot of her work. And she's been describing what does that look like? So instead of just telling people not to do X, don't leave your homes, right? Well, geez, yeah, I mean, maybe from an infection, from a suppression standpoint, right? Yeah, I mean, there'll be a lot less coronavirus circulating and people just stay locked in their homes for months on end, but you can't do that, right? So you think about harm reduction. Well, how can we, harm reduction, and the, the, the best way of putting it is we meet people where they are. People don't want to stay locked in their homes for months on end. They want to get out. Okay, fine. How can we enable you to do that and lower the risk both to yourselves and the most marginalized members, most vulnerable members of our communities? So classic examples, like you can go outside. Go outside. I live in Colorado. People like the outdoors in Colorado, right? I mean, I was warned about that when I got here. Absolutely true, as it turns out, right? You know, we have open spaces in Colorado. We have good parks in the city of Denver. You can go outside. It's fine. Go outside, right? Wear a mask. Try to be physically distanced, right? Don't circulate with people who aren't members of your household, right? Those kinds of things. That's okay, right? Um, and that's why, so for example, all those pictures of people congregating in beaches really are driving harm reduction people, bananas pants, to be honest with you, because actually, if you can be physically distanced, right, at a beach mm -hmm. and stay with members of your own household, that's probably okay from a risk management perspective, right? And the harms of avoiding being outside of your home are profound from being locked in your home for, for days and weeks and months on end, not locked, I shouldn't use that phrase, but having to be confined to your house, right? So that to me is what a harm reduction right. approach means is we think about where people are, what they need, what we what they want, and then we find ways to help them and to reduce the risk to themselves, their families and, and communities. It's actually, let me get you in on this. I mean, to the way it's being described, it, it sounds like a kind of profound realism that's in very short supply in America these days. But um, it, it strikes me that this harm reduction approach might run into difficulty with risk communication because we're, we're telling people something and it's more than one message, maybe. I mean, harm reduction could, the way Daniel's described it, could take a number of different forms. It's not just one thing. It's not you know, maybe there are multiple things that can reduce the level of harm. How do you think about, you know, what Daniel was saying and, and maybe bring in the science communication piece of this a little bit, because I know it's really, really tricky. 
Yeah, so this was something that really kind of we saw fall out in the beginning with some of the language that we chose to communicate our risk reduction and harm reduction. And so the goal here was that, yeah, we didn't want to lock you in your house. We know that isolation is not good for you. And in terms of suppressing infection, yes, that's great. But what is the mental health fallout? What is the chronic illness fallout of, of making people stay at home? And so how do we balance that? And so we came up with the language of, you know, stay physically distanced. Um, and the problem with that was that actually that's not a very counterintuitive term. Um, what exactly does that mean, right? So we're out there and we're telling everybody to stay physically distanced, you know, go out, distance, distance, distance. And it's, it's a pretty meaningless term if you can't back it up. And you're talking about a novel situation where that word really has not been used before. Um, so then you say, okay, if you can go out and maintain a six foot distance from people. But then the question becomes, okay, what is six feet? Uh, most of us, we can't draw a six foot line if you asked us to. Um, and so there, there became a lot of confusion and some people were actually getting a little depressed that physical distancing was equivalent to isolating. So stay home. I'm supposed to be distanced. Um, quarantine was essentially physical distancing to a lot of people. And so there was this need and movement to shift the term to social distancing, which indicates that you would kind of stay. Oh, sorry, I split those. So social distancing should be the preferred term. Uh, no, physical distancing should be the preferred term. Sorry. So that you physically stay separated, whereas social distancing gets at the fact that you know, you're not actually physically distanced and we're keeping everybody in line and your mental health is happy, please call your friends up. You don't have to be isolated. If you can go out in a park and stay six feet away from them, please do that. You know, keep your physical distance, maintain your social well-being. Right. So main, keep social solidarity, keep physical distance. But then you talked about the lockdown. I mean, language has been such a tricky thing throughout this, this pandemic. Um, and you know, even the term lockdown that you that you use, is that used anymore? What are the problems with using the term lockdown? I mean, it, again, it sort of conveys a clear message, but maybe there's also some uh, uh, mental health implications of using that terminology. Yeah, and I think the term lockdown, at least here, never really caught on quite as much as quarantine did. And there were some issues between what is the difference between quarantine and isolation, right? And so that had to be explained in the beginning. Um, where you're isolating if you had been in direct contact or if you were sick yourself, you're quarantining, meaning you're limiting how much you go out and you're limiting yourself to just the essential activities. You're not in there, you know, because you have to be. Um, this idea of lockdown, I think, really stand out of the beginning of the pandemic before it was really in the U.S. where Italy and China were making people stay at home. Um, and that was a problem, I think, in the U.S. because that really, really infringes on what the U.S. individuals think of as their individual autonomy. You can't lock me in my house. It's against the constitution and I have freedom and all of these other things. And so I think the term lockdown really kind of fell out of favor over time. Um, but as you as you said, it's also just a very detrimental word um, because it does give that that view that yes, you're gonna be stuck here um, rather than you know just use your risk calculation in your head. Do you have to go to the grocery store four times this week? Maybe you can make it one trip. It's not quite the same. Um, and so you want to make sure that the the weight of the word that you are using is appropriate for what you're trying to communicate. Daniel, can I bring you in on this? I mean, it, it, it strikes me, and to be fair to public health officials and governors and risk communicators, I know they're learning um, in real time here. And a lot of times public health campaigns have a lot of time, if you're talking about chronic illness, to develop and craft messages there hasn't been that amount of time with this. By the same token, I've been maybe too outspoken about some discomfort I've had around war metaphors, fighting metaphors, and imprisonment metaphors. We, we lapsed into this kind of language very 
quickly, and I, I felt like that often was at cross purposes with this sort of broader emphasis on care and on the term you used, harm reduction. What What's your thinking been about the use of language at this time? Yeah, so a couple things. I mean, 100%. So I agree completely with Ashley. I think she's pretty much hit it on the head, right? But I mean, I think, you know, the language of lockdown, first of all, it's not a precise public health term, right? Like, you know, if you asked Ashley a year ago, what's a lockdown? She, you know, you're an epidemiologist. What's a lockdown? She would have looked at you like, I don't know. You tell me what it is. I have no idea what you're talking about, yeah. right? So one, it's not really precise. And it's imprecision is problematic, right? Because, you know, it's not, it implies a sort of all or nothing kind of thing. And that's not the right way to approach this, right? I mean, there's lots of different things we can do that could have different effects. It's not just like everybody has to stay indoors at all times for the next six weeks. That doesn't make a lot of sense, in part because we really have micro epidemics. What's appropriate for one area is not the same thing as what's appropriate for another area in the same state. And you alluded to that at the beginning, Scott, when you talked about what's the difference in Ashley did between Rochester and Long Island. It wouldn't make sense to have the same kinds of public health interventions in those places, depending on what's happening with coronavirus. The, the other real problem with the language of a lockdown, despite not just that it's um, it's imprecise and that it implies a sort of all or nothing approach, which, by the way, is a lot of what we've done in the U.S. with the pandemic, right? Not, which is not good from a public health perspective. But I think the other thing, and again, this is Lindsay Wiley has been making this point, I think, very effectively, is is it is it connotes restrictions as opposed to supports, right? I mean, one of the things we know from pre-pandemic planning and stuff like that is the role of public health to support, right, people to make the kinds of decisions that we know will be beneficial for larger uh, mitigation or suppression of, a, of of an infectious disease like this. So, you know, for example, you know, it's the government's job, I think, you know, to identify where there are a high risk contexts and then provide the supports that people need to eliminate or suppress those kind of contexts. So if we know that indoor bars, right, are super spreading events, then the idea of support suggests that we literally pay small business owners to close their bars, not necessarily for a year or anything like that, but for if there's a spike or an outbreak, we need a couple of weeks to get a hold of this. We need three, four weeks. We need five weeks, whatever it is, right? So you pay them. And the idea is these kinds of supports were part of literally every pre-pandemic plan that anyone who knows anything about how to control infectious disease has come up with basically in the modern era, right? And so it's not just about the restrictions. It's about what public health and government can do to support people to be able to live some semblance of their lives while trying to control um, a pandemic. So that's the other problem with that language. Military metaphors, this is, and then I'll shut up, I promise, but military metaphors. So, you know, my PhD is actually in medical humanities. There's a long tradition of studying the problem of war and martial metaphors in medicine and healthcare and public health in particular, right? And so um, I'm I think most people who do the kind of work I do are probably all convinced that it causes much more harm than good, right? Um, and I'm not sure what, what Ashley thinks about this, but I don't think there's also scholars who have been writing about what's called the securitization of public health, right? Where hmm. we saw this happen, for example, with 9-11, right? After some of the bioterrorism incidents of 9-11, there was a huge influx of funding into public health and public health got very excited. We were like, oh my God, finally, there's some money. But of course, the money didn't go to support core public health activities. It really only went for so-called security right. bioterror type concerns. And in fact, it actually ended up for a lot of public, for local health departments, it actually ended up making their budgets worse 
not better because people looked at them and said, look, we already gave you a bunch of money. And they were like, actually, there's no money for any of our core services here, right? So, um, you know, the military metaphors, military and martial language, securitization, security type language, none of that, in my opinion, is great for public health. None of that is good for the building of trust um, upon which effective public health fundamentally depends. I, I, that's a really powerful context to bring in and a, and a timeline that's very useful, I think, in this notion of securitization and critical moments in which um, we could sort of societally frame the risk in one way or another, and we often do choose to use the war frame. And I think there's complicated reasons for that. Many of those have to do with, with the way that government um, wants to move power in the midst of uncertainty and putting it in the hands of the executive branch since the Cold War has been a, a kind of a constant. But at the same time, I just want to return a, a bit to what we were talking about before. We have other metaphors at hand, uh, care, uh, compassion, love, teaching. You know, I mean, I was asked at one point, well, like, well, what metaphor would you use if you didn't use war? I was like, how about the metaphor of illness and health? I mean, it is a pandemic. It's not like we don't talk about that all the time. I don't know, Ashley, I guess I want to bring you on in on this. What have you thought about the way that um, that language has been uh, mobilized at, in the midst of this pandemic? Yeah, I think it's been an interesting progression. I just used and a metaphors military are... metaphor, by the way. Sorry, I just, used, I just said, I do it myself. I catch myself with that. How has language <laughs> been mobilized? I suppose you can mobilize health as well. Give me a pass on that one. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Actually, it's an interesting point because I have heard the mobilization of public health repeatedly and also something in Appy that we frequently talk about is sort of boots on the ground for people who are out in the field. Um, so those terms are very, very prevalent. But I think in terms of how you choose to approach and assign the metaphor has proven to be quite problematic this time around. Um, metaphors usually are really, really sometimes a good tool because they're tangible. Um, for a lot of people who have experienced, you know, certain events, they, they remember what that felt like and they can feel that and they understand. And so that's kind of their comparison point, right? Um, the issue is, though, on a global scale, like Dan alluded to, we are really, really degrading the trust in public health as a whole. Um, so we've seen people in war-torn areas who really don't like the war analogy. Um, they don't feel that it's fitting and it, it's completely inappropriate for somebody, you know, a U.S. citizen who has never had to experience that sort of thing to kind of be alluding to the fact that they can still step outside of their house and be relatively safe, you know, they can walk down the street. Um, whereas other people have kind of gone through different individual traumas where that's just not an appropriate metaphor. Um, the other issue is, again, I think war is just not, it doesn't get to the core issue, it kind of dances around it. Um, and we saw this with the use of the, like the flu metaphor at the beginning of COVID. So, you know, there was this kind of warning like, oh, it's not as bad as the flu, don't worry. Right. Um, and people get stuck on that. And so that causes problems. And in the flu case, it caused the problem that people didn't believe that this was as big of a problem, that it didn't really require as much attention as we were trying to push on them. It's just the flu, you know, everybody gets the flu, no big deal. The other issue though, is if you push a metaphor so strong the other ways, it can really impact people's mental health. If people wake up every day feeling like they're going to war, um, we have really, really, really detrimentally harmed people. Um, and so, no, this is a serious situation and it deserves a serious term or phrase or however you choose to tangibly identify it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the same thing. So it, it deserves its own kind of connotation and so that people can kind of hang on to that and know what level of severity this is.
remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. We're having a conversation today about bioethics and epidemiology and language with COVID-19. I'm talking with Ashley Holub and Dan Goldberg. Ashley, I just want to stick with that for a second because I have a theory about this and, and like to know what you think about it. Coming back to this discussion of war um, and disaster generally in which when, we, when it comes time to assess impacts, dollars and death counts, um, we're used to talking about war in that way. And we're often used to talking about disaster more generally in that way. But when we talk about these other things that we've just been discussing, um, how much care was expended, how much harm was reduced. Um, even back to what you were talking about before with lockdown, I saw numbers in March, very impressive numbers. How many people around the world are on lockdown at this moment? So it was measuring, you know, it was sort of saying, yeah, this is a pro-social act, but we measure it, it with this very concrete measure. How many miles have people not driven? These kinds of very tangible, um, countable kind of things. But to me, it leaves a vast territory of important action, uncounted, untheorized, not brought into the equation. It's, it seems important to me, and maybe people are doing good work on how to account for care, as my colleague Robert Soden has said. How do we count for care? I don't, I don't know if any of this is resonating with some of the things you're you're thinking about at this time? Yeah, there's certainly, obviously harm reduction is not an easy thing to measure outside of the usual metrics. And even that is very, very difficult. Um, one of the issues that we've had, right, is how much harm have we implemented by scaring people out of going to the doctors? Um, so we did see emergency room department utilization rates decrease and we saw a, a very sharp decrease actually in port attacks and other things. And so the question became, where did they all go? Um, they didn't stop having heart attacks just because we told them to stay home. Um, and so you have to start to measure, right, what does that look like in terms of mortality and morbidity? So again, going back to that kind of death count, but it's not just death count. Now it becomes long-term chronic conditions. It becomes exacerbation of long-term chronic conditions. What happens to the people who didn't leave their house because they couldn't go to their doctors to pick up their medications? Now they're out of control. Their condition's not controlled. That tallies up in healthcare expenses, maybe not in the short term right now, but when things start to ease up a little bit, absolutely we'll be seeing that. And so there's going to be a very considerable lag in between what we know now and what we will see later. Um, and that lag is so much more than just the acute effects of COVID at the moment. It will also be the long-term lasting mental health effects, the long-term disability effects, all of that kind of compounding on chronic conditions is going to be something that will be very, very costly in the long-term. Daniel, bring you in on this. Any, any comments on what we've just been been talking about here? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to add. I mean, I think again, Ashley sort of hit it, hit it right down the middle. I mean, I think, you know, the only things I would add is I think there are some, just in the last couple of days, we've seen some people talking about excess deaths mm -hmm. being a better statistic, right? And for those of us who, who think about stigma and structural violence in public health, which is a lot of what I study, we're used to thinking about excess deaths because of these historical patterns of domination, oppression, and subordination, right? One of the ways we can chart the differences, the health impact of these histories on different groups is by looking at the excess death in those groups, right? And so it's 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 sometimes a good way of getting a sense of not just of what's going on, but inequalities in access to power and resources, right? Um, and health buffering conditions and things like that. And so, you know, they're estimating the official death count for the US is something like 160,000, but I think they just estimated this week that excess deaths is well over 200,000. And that includes some of the kinds of things that Ashley was talking about, right? The people who are dying at home, the people who are dying 
maybe partly because we don't know what percentage of them yet, but be partly because they were not able to seek emergent care or things like that. And then to me, the other one that's been sort of really sort of sort of on my mind quite a bit recently, and I think it's at least worth mentioning, are the quote unquote long COVID, right? I mean, that to me is absolutely terrifying, right? I mean, when this first happened, you know, people were talking about mortality. And like Ashley said, they're saying, oh, mortality doesn't look that bad, you know, in terms of flu, you know, and I think one, it's important to know, right? Obviously that's not true. We have a lot of people dying, as you said, Scott, right? I mean, an awful lot of people dying from coronavirus. But when I think about, I mean, I'm a chronic illness person. So I think a lot more about morbidity as well, right? And, and you know, the fact that CDC said in the last 10 days, that as many of a third a third of people who get coronavirus and recover are still dealing with um, significant, significant and bizarre total body impact and effects of coronavirus. A substantial percentage of me, I don't know if they know, but when I say a third dealing with it, some of those are severe. I mean, severe. And we can't just mm. dismiss people's stories as anecdata. I mean, we don't have a good sense, of course, on prevalence of how, how many people who are long COVID long haulers dealing with the aftermath of COVID for months after they've officially recovered from the acute phase of their illness. We don't know what percentage of them are severe, but it looks like it's alarming right, is what I would say. There's an alarming number of stories, way too many to just dismiss as anecdata, basically, right? Um, to me, that's that's terrifying in terms of the long-term impact of this. I mean, we don't even know what these people are experiencing, why they're experiencing it, how long they're going to continue to experience it for, what we can do to help them. I mean, they are organizing themselves now, is what I have read patients who are dealing with long-term long-haul COVID are organizing themselves because, you know, they're trying to figure out some way to help themselves. It's, it's, it's horrendous. You know, just to bring it back to the politics, Daniel, that to me is really scary. Just as you said, it's a terrifying thing. And not only from the perspective of the sufferers, but also what I think we've seen in the United States, certainly since Hurricane Katrina, is an unraveling of what had been a sort of a disaster relief consensus uh, for a long time that, um, and it wasn't perfect, but that disaster recovery was, was a place where you tried to tamp down politics as much as possible. And I think back to Hurricane Maria, and President Trump was, was furious that the death count wasn't what he said it was, which was less than 20 people. He was insistent that fewer than 20 people had died in Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria. Because that was those were the number of people who died literally in the storm as it washed over the island. But of course, the death count was much higher than that. And it's still going on. The deaths from 9-11 are still going on because of respiratory illness. This long COVID, I worry that we don't have the political capacity right now to talk about harm in that way. Is, is there some remedy or what can people, um, you know, with the kind of skills that you and Ashley have, what kind of interventions can you suggest so that policymakers, when they start to build policy around this, take that kind of temporality into account? So I'll defer to Ashley. I want to hear what she's going to say. Okay, sure. Yeah, and so there's no there's no easy answer to this, that's for sure. Um, one of the things that I think has become really apparent is that the communication lines between the people doing the work and the science and the politicians who are out there kind of conveying their plans um, is not good. It's not very fluid anymore. 
um, we've really lost a lot of experts and we've lost a lot of channels in and it, we see a really big gap in, in equities, in care delivery, in disaster relief when they're not being backed by any kind of science-based or expert-based foundation. Um, Katrina, you know, I is a very interesting example. It's an example that I'm very familiar with and I've given quite a bit. Um, Katrina faced horrible, horrible ethics issues with their crowding in the EDs that has been brought up repeatedly for COVID. What do we do when we run out of ventilators? Who gets the ventilator? Um, and so, you know, those are situations we really, really want to obviously avoid. These are not discussions we should be having because a life is a life. But Katrina happened how many years ago? And yet there has been no remedy. Um, and so people really need to be pushing the button on these issues, not just when they're a problem. We need to remember that another pandemic can really happen at any time. Another Katrina can happen at any time. We need to be prepared. I, I mean, I think that's, again, absolutely right. I mean, I guess the only other thing I, I would add is, um, you know, I mean, what helps people with chronic illness in general, which actually, as it turns out, is pretty much the same thing that helps people with infectious and communicable disease, the social determinants of health are the social determinants of health. And they have impacts with infectious and communicable disease the same way that they do with NCD, right? I mean, at least in similar ways, you know, and, you know, when you look at other nations that are managing their pandemic better than we are, which is pretty much all of them, right? Um, um, with maybe a few exceptions, I guess, right? Um, you know, it's social policies. And that's a lot of what my work is about. It's about thinking about public health law, thinking about public health policy as a tool for advancing public health and compressing inequalities. And it's a powerful tool, right? One of the things that we say in my field is that law is a major social determinant of health. And if people didn't quite get that before coronavirus, I think it's much more widely apprehended now than it probably was in February, that the laws and policies we have have an enormous impact on your likelihood of getting sick, on who gets sick, how sick they get. And when we have a society that, society that has robust social policies, we're in a much better position to respond and to deal with the acute phases of an ongoing pandemic. And Scott, we're also in a much better position to be able to take care of people who have long-term and chronic sequelae from experiencing that illness. It's the same kinds of social policies mm -hmm. and supports, whether it's healthcare, whether it's unemployment, whether it's you know um, protection of job status, whether it's home health care, right, whether it's child care, whether it's educational support, right, all of these kinds of things in societies which provide more of these things to their residents, their people are healthier and they tend to have less inequalities, right? In our society where we have made decisions to support a very thin social set of social policies, if any, in many places we have almost none, right, but even where we have them, they're pretty thin. Um, we struggle at all levels, and that's part of why it's so terrifying. We struggle to manage the acute phase of the pandemic. And yeah, to be honest with you, we're going to struggle to manage the chronic and long-term sequelae of people who have experienced coronavirus or who, like Ashley said, have experienced the trauma of loss um, um, from, from coronavirus as well. Yeah, and to just add to that, actually, because this was, this was great, um, our infrastructure under good times is really lacking in those areas. So we've seen that schools are being used for far more than just providing education to your kids. They've become childcare so you can go to work. You know, the work-life balance here is kind of not taken off the way that people refer to it as being a balance. Um, and so how do we fix those inequities in society and really fix the, the overarching infrastructure would really improve everything even in times of emergency. Um, we're struggling and healthcare itself is very discriminatory. There are practices that definitely need to be improved. Um, and we see those just kind of on blast during emergency situations, but it's not that they're not there during good times. Um, they're absolutely there. They're just not as obvious. This is absolutely illuminating, I think, because again, it shows the kind of where we started, 
how we frame the risk. I mean, earlier on, we were talking about how you frame it in terms of the size of the group you want to parse. But now you're talking about how you frame the risk in terms of the amount of time in, in which the risk then turns into a harm of some kind. And this is playing out over a long, over a long time. In fact, um, you know, as Daniel was saying about the long COVID, so people who have it and survive, but they have health symptoms that go on a long time. Um, I guess my question to that, Ashley, to you first, is that the basis of a politics? I mean, in disaster history, there is a moral authority that's conferred upon victims, victims' families, speaking for the dead, and on survivors. I had Robert Lifton on um, recently, and, you know, I mean, he wrote Death and Life, and he wrote about Hiroshima survivors, and and that became the basis, and it was not easy, but it became the basis for a form of political dissent in Japan and around the world. Do you, do you think something like that's possible in this moment? I asked Lifton the same question, and he, he demurred. So I wonder if I can get you to take it on. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, and I, I actually don't know that I have a solid answer to that. Um, you know, we've seen patient groups push for things before. Um, the ADA dismantling being a perfect example, um, you know, we know that the ADA is there to protect individuals with disabilities, but it repeatedly is under attack. Um, so it'll be interesting kind of to see after COVID when we have so many more individuals who are dealing with things like chronic fatigue syndrome or any kind of disability as a result, what happens to that policy? Um, because it's already something that, you know, people have been pushing for. So, you know, now you have more people pushing for it, but where does it go? And maybe Daniel, Dan can I get you in on this? Yeah, I want to get you in on the same question because I do think the when we talk about disaster survivors, I mean the same is true with you know HIV/AIDS. Um, you know there are good maybe public health moments in our history, not too distant past, in which um, victims and the struggle with survivors becomes the basis of a of a form of of politics that might address some of these broader inequities and might move towards social policy. Maybe I'm taking a too optimistic turn here. I'm a pessimist and a misanthrope, to be honest with you. Under the best of circumstances, Scott, and running, living through an out-of-control pandemic is obviously not the best of circumstances. Um, I, but that's not to disagree with you. I mean, of course, you're 100% right, Scott. And I mean, literally, obviously, you're, you're the expert on this, right? That there is, a, there can be a kind of a moral authority and a politics that can come from these kinds of things. But, you know, there, there are some pretty strong counter forces, you know, and I think also to be honest with you, to the extent that, you know, victims, as you sort of said, or survivors, you know, have that kind of moral authority, you know, we're talking about chronic illnesses and chronic illnesses that are, are probably are going to be things that are what anthropologists refer to as contested illnesses, right? So Ashley alluded to chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic and stuff, right? ME, right? I mean, people who live with MECFS have had just an enormously difficult time getting anyone to, to pay serious attention, let alone to help them basically with the terrible things that they're experiencing. You know, the, the bizarreness of some of the, what the long COVID haulers are experiencing. I mean, when I say bizarreness, I just mean, it's very strange. It's this, they have profound neurological symptoms, right? Cardiomyopathies, many of them are reporting like, you know, abnormal heart effects, you know, visions, hallucinations. I mean, it's, 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 it's sounds awful to be honest with you, right? And it's just, I guess it's hard for me to imagine a coherent interest group with these kinds of sort of 
um, sort of largely chronic and right. often stigmatized kinds of health conditions really sort of, you know, galvanizing political action in a society that sort of, I think, um, has all too often been dead set against it. So um, I hope you're right, Scott, and I'm wrong. How about that? Yeah. No, but I, I mean, that there again, you're showing a kind of difficulty here, but even back to this discussion we were having about excess deaths and comorbidities and so many things that are being counted as something else which may never even be counted as COVID. And, and even people who I've talked to, even Kyoko Sato in this program uh, last week, and she's a colleague of mine. She was sick for months. Was, sure, she had COVID. She tested negative. It was too hard to go back and get a, a second test, I think. You know, the timing was... And so she's not even counted. So where does she fit in? Where does her story fit into this sort of turning into the politics? I want to remind people that we're uh, you're listening to COVID calls and we're having a great conversation today with Daniel Goldberg and Ashley Hullivan. We have some questions in uh, comment here from Jorge Benavides. Thank you, Jorge, for that. And uh, Yonsil Kang, um, moving us into you know just the light conversation about the ethics of vaccines, um, but it's really if you've got people with your your sense of, of the complexity of these issues on, we should talk about this. What do you think of her question? Is there enough discussion on the social aspects of vaccination in this, in this sense as we're moving into already promises of a vaccine by election day? That doesn't sound right, but promises early in 2021 of a vaccine. Ashley, can you start us down this vaccination discussion and then we'll bring Daniel in? Sure. So I'll start with the promises part. Um, you know, in terms of picking a date, of course, you plan protocols and you try to plan ahead and you have a timeline. But with research, I think a lot of things never really go as planned. Um, and so it's it's kind of a it's, it's an interesting little balance. So it's the idea of do we give people hope or is it false hope and do we make things worse? Um, we know we need a vaccine. So we know that people are working on it and we know that that's the work that's got to get done. Um, in terms of, you know, weighing in on what are the social policies behind that, how do we encourage vaccine uptake and how do we encourage it to the percentage that we need to really grant that immunity that we're trying to get? And so, I mean, this question has been kind of the Achilles heel for epi and for medical um, fields for a while now with the, anti the rise of the anti-vaxxer movement. How do you require people to get a vaccine when it is their body? Um, and so I think this goes back to our earlier discussion about, you know, whether or not there's this individual approach to medicine or this more public health approach. And we need to understand that when we're in a public situation, we do things to help other people. And sure, getting a vaccine definitely helps you if you are, you know, one of the people that it is successful for, but it also helps the people who can't get vaccinated. And so I think that there needs to be a lot more discourse around that. Um, I haven't seen, you know, a ton of, a ton of, discussion around the social implications of it, other than, you know, how do we encourage people to do this? Um, but in understanding that there are elderly people who feasibly can't be vaccinated or people who with autoimmune conditions, we need to protect them too, right? So you don't get to be protected and then leave everybody else in the dust. And so by getting everybody else vaccinated, they're essentially part of the herd. Um, and so we do need to discuss what does this mean for individual, you know, individual autonomy. Um, Anti-vaxxers feel very strongly that they're putting poison in their body, which is not true. Vaccines definitely confer a benefit. Um, but, you know, they feel stigmatized against, you know, by saying these are mandated or else your kid can't come to school or else your kid mm -hmm. can no longer play on a playground. Um, and so that really is where we see the policy come into play. Right. So there does need to be some sort of top down authority saying if you don't do this, unfortunately, this this is what may happen. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much a stickler for vaccines, no pun intended. So 
I think you'll find for me, I, even though it is everybody's individual body, you're also becoming a vector for somebody else. Um, so thinking more outside of just you and what it means for the community is very, very important right now. Um, and this is a discussion we do need to be having because I, I do find that there are fence sitters. So there are people who they're scared of the idea of vaccines because they've heard things from anti-vaxxers. Um, and because anti-vaxxers are, they're really wonderful communicators. They do a really good job of filling in the gaps and meeting them at their level and mm -hmm. explaining things very simply. We need to also be on the ground there and meeting them at their level and answering their questions instead of just kind of, you know, oh, why are you an anti-vaxxer? It needs to be an open discussion. Um, and I think we do need to see more of that. Um, yeah, so this brings up a, a point that um, I had actually hoped we would get to, to your right at the end, Scott, so I hope you'll forgive me. But like, um, yeah. you know, I think when we're talking about the failures with the pandemic, they're at the level of law and policy and governance, not individual behaviors. What do I mean by that, right? So if you talk to anybody who designs public health protocols for a living, Ashley knows this because she's an epidemiologist, right? If you're the success or failure of your intervention depends on large numbers of people behaving in the way you want them to behave. If that's how your public health intervention is going to succeed or fail, it's it's no good from the start. That's a terrible way to plan a public health intervention. Okay, and, um, and so while I totally understand people who get mad when they see people who aren't wearing masks, when they see get mad when they see people who choose who might choose not to have a coronavirus vaccine if one is safe and effective when it becomes available. To me, um, that's focusing on the wrong level. I'm not saying, by the way, you can't be frustrated by it. I get it. It's okay. We're human. You're allowed to be angry about it. Okay. But, um, you know, the, the real issue is at the level of policy and governance, right? So two, a couple examples I can give you, right? Um, sure, you could tell everybody not to go to an indoor bar in the age of coronavirus. You could do that. But you know what you should probably do? You should probably just close the bars at the level of policy and governance, right? Because then people won't go to the bars, right? And yes, of course, that right. raises other problems. Public health is complicated. You have to do some other things too, right? But same kind of thing. I mean, I just heard it today, right? The issue is now the, the governor of Arizona, they just said that the schools are gonna reopen even though none of the schools have actually met the state benchmarks that the State Department of Health had set, right? So you're gonna be mad when you look at students in those school districts and you see them crowding together and you see them talking to each other without getting masks, right? Everyone's gonna get really mad about the right. individual behaviors of high school students not following the rules, right? right. right. That's wrong, right? right? They're not going to wear masks. They're not going to physically distance, not all of them, right? What should you do? Well, maybe you set the policy where you actually just close the school, for example, right? And so you can see the same kind of thing happening with vaccination. I completely agree with Ashley that, of course, we want to do everything we can to encourage people to get vaccinated. I'm 100% in favor of that. I'm as pro-vaccine as you can get. But we also want to think about levels of policy and governance, right? So some of my colleagues have worked on things like closing exemptions, which is state laws, right? So that not that people can choose, it's not that people have no right to choose not to get vaccinated, but that it's going to be much narrower. It's going to be much harder to claim a state exemption under state law, right? To mm -hmm. the general obligation for compulsory vaccination. Um, for me, it's always about policy and law and governance. That's what I call eyes on the prize when we talk about public health. Those kinds of structural upstream interventions are much more likely to succeed. They're much less likely to stigmatize because they apply to everyone equally, right? And so that's, I think, the level at which we need to be talking about, whether we're talking about vaccines or closing bars and indoor dining or schools or any of those kind of things in any public health context. If I could just, uh, I think this is really important part of the discussion and just to bring um, another layer into it, we are living in an age in the United States, since we've been talking about the United States, of um, 
you know, merchants of doubt. I mean, we are living in a, in a time in which, you know, the majority of Americans believe in anthropogenic climate change, but we still can't get good climate change policy for complicated reasons, but primarily because the petroleum industry has introduced doubt into the system and the way that our system works, it's, it, it, a lot of doubt can get introduced into the system. A lot of misinformation and disinformation can get moved into the system. So Daniel, I, I think your your law and policy intervention model, I agree with that entirely as well. And yet at the same time, and I look at sort of where what our track, what our track record or, or report card is on that in the United States recently, I'm frustrated. Um, and, and I'm seeing this now, even the the hydroxychloroquine, the the anticipation Ashley is bringing us, and even the anticipation of an anti- COVID vaccination um, shows me that we, I mean, I hope we're just in an odd moment, but maybe this is again, sort of deeper and more structural around the possibility to flummox good policy with misinformation and disinformation in the United States. And we're coming up on, on time and I just opened like a whole other hour of conversation, but I, if I could at least get a quick reaction from you on, on that and then how we react yeah. to that. Ashley, can you? I think so much of this, yeah, definitely. So much of this goes back to the need for that open lines of communication between the people doing the work and the people openly conveying the work to the public. So scientists are, you know, they're not fun people to talk to for most people. I think, you know, we're talking up here most of the time and we're, you know, talking past each other. But your politicians, they have a platform and they do know how to talk to people um, quite effectively, actually, as we've seen with the hydrochloroquine. Um, so we need that open line of communication to seamlessly be able to convey the right information back and forth. Um, outside of politics, we've had this whole other in issue of disinformation um, just simply with social media. Um, and so that kind of comes in as well, needing a central policy on, you know, possibly how do we pull down these posts or how do we flag them? People may not necessarily know that they're incorrect. Um, it's sometimes people are consuming this information completely unintentionally, but they're misled. Um, so how do we kind of put a stop on that and meet them before it becomes an issue? Daniel, just the final word on that on that issue of, of uh, I wasn't trying to push back too hard, but I am a little worried about uh, policy solutions right now when I see how easy they are to derail. Yeah, no, I mean, so full disclosure, I'm actually writing a book, basically, Scott, on the manufacture of doubt in general in public health. Um, um, so so it's it's definitely it's definitely on my mind. I mean there's no question that of course it's true, right? And it's been um, that idea of capture, the way that merchants of doubt and agnotologists, people who intentionally wield ignorance, right, largely in the support of commercial motives in the US, I mean that's that's the history here. And again, you know that better than anybody, right? So um, should you be concerned about it? Yeah, of course, right? It's a huge problem. I guess my my answer to that is, and maybe this is just me as a ruthless pragmatist, like I, I you know, we have to, we, there's no other option. We're not going to fix these problems, these problems being the pandemic, these problems being it looks like we might have just had a small freeze there for a second. So maybe we'll catch up with with Daniel. Ashley, you can can you still Sorry, hear me? Okay. I'm back now. Um, there he is. He's there back. Is. Sorry about that. Just Great. right at the end, the internet. No, you just introduced and I was just putting it up on the screen because you're just introducing us to these this remarkably 
important concept, agnotology, and people who haven't checked it out. It's a thing. And it helps yeah, explain a lot of these stuff. phenomena that we've just been talking about. So, Daniel, we lost you right about at that point. Can you go ahead? Yeah, no, it's fine. I, I know where I'm coming. So I'll just, I'll just, the, the only thing I'm saying is, yes, I think it's a very real concern. Um, I, I guess for me, Scott, what I'd say is I don't really see an alternative, right? The level at which we're going to have to intervene to do better with the pandemic, to do better at taking care of people with chronic illness, whether it's long COVID or any other kind of health problem, it has to be at the level of policy and governance and law. That's what we're going to have to do. We're either going to find a way how to do it as a society or we're not. And if you're pessimistic, I don't really blame you. I just think I'm a public health person. This is the only way forward. So tomorrow on COVID calls, we're going to be talking about the Asian American experience of COVID-19, Asian American and Pacific Islander experience with Vivian Shaw. And she's going to be talking about a, a new research project that she's part of um, on that topic. And today, what a great discussion. I want to thank Daniel Goldberg and Ashley Holup. And I also want to to say that Ashley is having a birthday today. Um, and so she was kind enough to take an hour out of her and even 15 extra minutes now. <laughs> so happy birthday, Ashley. And thanks to you and thanks to Daniel both. for this is an hour of learning for me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks everybody. Okay, I really everybody Thank you, Scott. Catch, catch COVID calls every weekday at five o'clock Eastern time and stay healthy and we will see you tomorrow.